morning, uh, especially to visitors. I'm Brandon Barrett, the lead pastor here at Grace Covenant. Let me extend a welcome to you as well. We're glad you're with us this morning. Uh, you find us in the middle of a series on the book of Exodus. We're several weeks in, and we've started at the beginning of the book of Exodus and uh, have seen God come and hear the cries of his people and bring them out of Egypt and out of slavery into freedom. Now, this week we make the transition for the rest of the summer as we've, as we've come out of Egypt, and now we find God's people at the foot of Mount Sinai, where they receive God's law, His Ten Commandments. And so it's the beginning of our look for the rest of the summer at the Ten Commandments this morning. If you happen to be using one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page, uh, that we're beginning on page 60 of that Bible. We'll be starting in Exodus chapter 19, verse 9. Let me say, too, for those of you that have been uh, here for this series, you know, if you are interested in finding some additional resources and reading about Exodus or reading about the Ten Commandments, uh, we've got a list of those on our website. If you were to go to our website down in the bottom right-hand corner, there's a, a link to uh, the Grace Matters blog. We have a blog. If you don't know what that is, have somebody explain that to you afterwards. But you can click on that, and there's a list of resources. We also, for those of our, us that don't have computer access, we do have a, um, I think Kathy made some uh, copies of that list that will be out in the comments. So if you want to do a little extra reading, you can find that there. Uh, now, though, let's, uh, as before we pick up with Exodus 19, let's pray together, and then we'll read our text for this morning. Please pray with me. Father, uh, as, even as was prayed just a few minutes ago by Ben, we, we thank you for the privilege that it is to come before you and to hear your word. And so we ask that you really would open up our hearts and our minds right now to hear you and that your work would do what you promised that it will do, that it would not return void, that it would do its good work in us. So we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Picking up in Exodus chapter 19, verse 9, and then we're going to read all the way through Exodus chapter 20, just to get an overview of where we're going these next several weeks as we spend uh, uh, the next uh, rest of the summer here in, in this, these particular passages. So Exodus 19, verse 9. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke, because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up to the, like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord, and look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. 
And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. And the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourself gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen, and every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build of it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool upon it, you profane it, and you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Okay, a lot to take in, but the giving of the Ten Commandments, likely a familiar passage for many of us. And uh, this morning what we're going to do is we're going to look at uh, the way the Ten Commandments are introduced to us, and we'll get into the first actual commandment next week. In fact, this is the second week we spent on an introduction to the Ten Commandments. Camper preached last week going back to Matthew 5 and talking about Jesus' great statement that he came not to abolish the law but to fulfill it. And for us as Christians, as we come to this text In the Old Testament, as we come to everything in Scripture, we always come only straight through the line that leads us through Jesus. We never come apart from that. So Jesus, the one, the great fulfiller of the law, is going to be the foundation of everything that we talk about uh, for the rest of of this section on the on the Lord's uh, or on the Ten Commandments. But you hear the Ten Commandments, and this sort of settled gloom comes over. Uh, Don't you feel that a little bit? 
In fact, in honor of that, uh, in honor of us getting the Ten Commandments, I took my notes and I, I print them on legal size paper today. I thought that might be appropriate. Uh, and I, it's a bad joke, I know. I wore my, I, it gets worse, I wore my, law, my lawyer suit for this uh, particular sermon, too. Because there's something about us when we hear laws and we hear about commandments, it just, um, uh, for many of us, maybe it sort of strikes fear, in fact. Uh, I, I remember very vividly when I was a freshman in college, the freshmen, we, we had to show up on campus several days early for freshman orientation, which was sort of like, um, you know, big boy summer camp, because you come, you do a lot of social stuff, but in the midst of that, you also go to these orientation meetings for, for things about the school, most of which were fine, but there was one meeting uh, that, that, I, that I remember vividly. My college had a very strong honor code, and so one of the things they did in orientation was to orient you to what it means to live under that honor code in our college community. And I can remember sitting in the auditorium with all the other freshmen and seeing the professor up there, Dr. Mills. She was an English professor. I, I later found out as I had her in class that she was a very warm and, and loving woman, but none of that came through this day. Uh, as she lectured to us on the honor code about the ins and outs of, of what was uh, expected of us and the consequences for disobedience. And as it was explicated for us, I, I just sank lower and lower in my seat because though I considered myself an honorable person, I, I felt certain that at some point in my time in college I was going to forget a quotation mark and a paper and I was going to be accused of plagiarism and I was going to be kicked out of college, uh, possibly before my first semester was over as a freshman. And, and we walked out of that room just humbled and terrified as we thought about the weight of the law. Maybe you've had experiences like that with um, other forms of the law. Maybe you're like me and and they frighten you. Maybe, maybe you like laws. Maybe you like rules. And that might be true of some of us. Maybe you like rules because they give you a sense of uh, control. Well, at least I know what's expected of me. And there's only ten of them. I can live up to that. Because for some of us, control is paramount for us in our lives. Maybe for some of us, we hate the idea of laws because we think that laws inherently restrict our freedom. And for us, freedom, our personal autonomy, is what is paramount and feels threatened. So you might come to this series on the Ten Commandments from very different places, but I think it has something to say to, to all of us. But I, I'd say likely for many of us, when we hear the Ten Commandments, what we, what we don't hear or at least what we don't hear at first blush, is the welcoming voice of our God. The same one who speaks to us in Jesus. The same one who speaks to us in the hope of the gospel. And, and I hope we're going to see something different over these coming weeks. That when we come to the Ten Commandments, just as we come to every other part of Scripture, we hear the welcoming, the welcoming voice of our God. So as we see that this morning, as we take this introductory look at the Ten Commandments, we're going to look at their source and their foundation and their power. Okay, the source of the Ten Commandments, their foundation, and the power of the Ten Commandments. Okay, first their source, uh, which is maybe to belabor the obvious. Where do the Ten Commandments come from? Well, as we read in Exodus 20, they come from God. He speaks them. Now, it's easy in chapter 19 and 20 to get a little bit lost. It seems like every time we turn around, Moses is, is coming and going, and you're thinking this guy needs an elevator uh, for all the trips up and down the mountain. Uh, but it seems like what happens here is in, in the midst of this coming and going, that as the people assemble at the foot of the mountain, that all the people hear the voice of God speaking the Ten Commandments. There's much in Exodus that, that Moses brings to the people as 
God's intermediary to the people, but they hear God's voice speaking these commandments themselves. We're going to see how they react to that in a minute, but the point simply is that these the Ten Commandments come from God, and so it seems an easy leap in logic to think then that, that we need to pay attention to them. Some of you will be familiar with a, a public radio show called This American Life. The host is Ira Glass, and, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a great show, and it's an hour-long show every week, and Ira Glass goes and he assembles these reporters, and they, and they report on different aspects of, of life among sort of ordinary people. Sometimes it's topics, sometimes it's themes that hold the show together. And about a year ago, they did a show on the Ten Commandments because of their weighty place they have and still have in our world. And as he opened the show, he went through and, and read a list of other alternate forms of the Ten Commandments that he found as he was uh, looking through the Internet. So here's what he found. He found the Ten Commandments of Tractor Safety, uh, the Ten Commandments of Dining in Paris, the Ten Commandments of Umpiring, the Ten Commandments of Math Teachers, uh, and the one I would add to this list that would help us all would be the Ten Commandments of Cell Phone Etiquette. Don't you think we need that in our, in our world? <laughs> Okay, these might, he reads this list, and these might be funny, and many of these might even be wise. I can only imagine that the Ten Commandments of Tractor Safety are a help to you. If you have a tractor, you should pay attention to those. They might, be, they might well be wise, but we know as we read these, and even as we laugh, that they are not binding on us in the way that we either know the Ten Commandments are, or if, uh, if you're not convinced of that, the way you know that many people think the Ten Commandments are. They have a very different weight to them. And I, I would suggest even that many of those who, uh, and maybe some of us who, who are not convinced of the validity of the Ten Commandments, I would bet that that is tied to for you uh, to a real doubt that they're really given by God. But if what Exodus tells us is true, if God really did speak these to us, then do you feel the weight the weight in the sense of the significance of them, the importance of them. If God says, let me sum up for you what it means to live in my presence, and let me give you these, these ten summations, then we should listen and we should hear. God speaks to him and he reinforces him by this dramatic display of power. If you look in chapter 19, verses 19 through 25, I mean, imagine this uh, on the big screen watching a movie of this. I mean, it is... Uh, it's frightening, and it's in uh, full color. You, you get this picture of the thick darkness that comes and surrounds the mountain. In fact, God warns the people. He says, if you come close, you're going to have to be, you're going to be shot or you're going to be stoned by the people because you may not touch this mountain. There's danger even in touching it. He comes to the people and he says, you're going to spend the next three days consecrating yourselves. You have to go wash your clothes. You have to become ceremonially, ceremonially clean and pure in order to even listen to my voice. We hear this incredibly loud trumpet blast. You can hear it echoing off the rocks, getting louder and louder. And then this incredible fire that engulfs the mountain. Okay, they're at Mount Sinai. The first time we come to Mount Sinai is in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses first comes into contact with God at the burning bush at Mount Sinai. And God speaks to Moses in the middle of this burning bush and says, you're going to go and deliver my people and you're going to bring them back here so that they may serve me. Okay, now dial it forward to Exodus 19 and 20. That's what's happened. God sent Moses to Egypt. He's brought the people out. And here they are right back at this spot where it all started in Exodus chapter 3. It begins with Moses seeing God appear to him in this burning bush. And now we have the burning bush on steroids. Right? 
an entire mountain engulfed in flame. The sound of the trumpet magnified, and these people are shaken. They are terrified. Verse 19 of chapter 20, after they um, hear the Ten Commandments. Verse 19, they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. They are terrified and they think that they are going to be struck dead in the middle of this. I would be scared, wouldn't you? I mean, picture this, what they're coming into contact with. In fact, for some of us, maybe when you... Whenever you open up the Bible, this is the picture that you get. A smoking mountain and a God who brings threats and holiness. So it matters how we respond to this. And what we see in verse 20 is that this evokes a response of fear in the people who listen. We've been been saying that. But look what what Moses says. Um, And Moses is either making a very critical uh, nuanced distinction for us or he's flatly contradicting himself. Um, I, I think it's option A. But look, look at what he says. He essentially says to these people, he says, do not fear and fear. Okay, verse 20 of chapter 20. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to you to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. He tells them not to fear. He says, you are not going to die today. That is not what is happening here. Do not fear, because this God who has come and appeared before you, it is not the terror of death, but it is something else. Now, our translation, if you're using the ESV here, says that God has come to test you. A couple commentators have pointed out that this might actually be better translated as God has come that you might have an experience of him, that you might rightly fear him. Okay, it's not, he's not coming to give you the... Um, the final exam, he's coming to give you an experience of him and his holiness. That you might rightly fear him. That you might no longer be trapped in terror, but you might instead be brought in to what we're exhorted to many times in Scripture, the fear of the Lord. That he is our holy God. And that we are to come to him with a sense of awe and respect and reverence. God is God and we are not, we are not he. So these ten, these ten commandments front come from this God, this sobering, awe-inspiring God. Okay, that's their source, source of the ten commandments. The second thing we see here is uh, the foundation of the ten commandments. Now to sort of get us into why this is important, let me ask you a question. True or false question? Please don't shout out your answer. The New Testament teaches that God's people are saved by grace. Part one. Part two. The Old Testament teaches that God's people were saved by keeping the law. Okay, some of us would say true or would want to say true or would say that's a trick question or something. I don't know. Um, But I think what's important for us to see, and sometimes that's not the baggage that we carry into this text when we read it, is that the Ten Commandments are founded on God's grace. They're founded on God's grace. This passage begins, this passage of law begins with the gracious love of our God. Look with me at, um, at verse 2 of chapter 20. This is called the prologue to the Ten Commandments. Before he gives the actual commandments as God speaks, here's what he says. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. What's he saying to them? He's saying that there is uh, a relationship with God that precedes the giving of the law. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Not I am the Lord who might be your God if you can sign off on what I'm about to tell you. 
I am the Lord your God. God's identifying himself. He's highlighting who he is. Not only who he is, but who he is for his people. Not just God in the abstract. I am the Lord your God. We are in relationship. He's, he's speaking this to the people that he has brought out of Egypt, already redeemed. He's saying, you are already connected to me. You are my people. And this goes back, as we've said time and again, even in this series, back to a promise that stretches back over 450 years to when God first appears to Abraham. It says, I'm going to make a people out of you more numerous than the stars, more numerous than the sands of the seashore, and you will be a blessing to the entire world. He, he makes that promise to Abraham and he sticks to it. God is the one who initiates, and he initiates in grace. He says, I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. He's highlighting what he's already done for his people. He says, I am the God who has set you free, who has delivered you, who has redeemed you, who has brought you out of slavery into this new freedom. I am your God who has brought you to freedom. Grace precedes the giving of the law. And they don't stand opposed to each other. God says, you are my people. And now I'm going to tell you what it means to live in relationship with me. I'm going to tell you what it means to be people who really and truly and thoroughly are human, made, remade, the way we were, you were created originally to be. Now that brings up the question of, you know, how does God's work relate between uh, what, the way he worked with his people in the Old Testament and the way he works with his people in the New Testament? What's, what's the difference? Well, I think one of the things that we see here is that there's incredible continuity, in fact, foundational continuity between God's grace to his people in the Old Testament and his grace to us on this side of the coming of Jesus. And, and maybe this illustration will help just grasp it a little bit. Um, imagine a, a huge swimming pool. And um, the Old Testament people of God are standing in the shallow end right after you get down the steps. Okay, they are in the swimming pool. They're splashing around. It's great to be in the pool. you got your floaties out, and you're having fun. But it's three feet deep. The pool is great, but it's three feet deep. And what happens when we get to the New Testament after the coming of Jesus? We find that we are still in that very same pool, but we are suddenly splashing around in the deep end, where our feet don't touch, where you can dive off the high dive, where you can experience all that the pool really is. God's grace and his initiative with his people is that pool, and God's Old Testament people of Old Testament people and we as his New Testament people are in that same pool. But what happens? After the coming of Jesus, we see the fullness of God's grace. We see in the Old Testament the shadows and the pictures of what, of what God's grace is going to look like one day, but we have the reality in Christ. Both peoples, the Old Testament and New Testament people, are connected to this same God who comes to his people in grace. But in the fullness of our time in history, we, because of the coming of Jesus, taste even more fully than they did the beauty and the graciousness and the glory of Christ. But we are all one people, saved by that very same grace of God. So we see here, again, we see the, where the, uh, the Ten Commandments, their source and their foundation, that they come to us in grace. But we're also going to see uh, their power. And the, and the law has two powers over us, and and we get a hint of that of these even in this text. One is the law has the power to condemn us. Okay, now that's not a contradiction of what we just said that God comes to us in grace. But but what is our experience as we hear the law? That we don't keep the law. 
that we're not really law keepers, we're law breakers. And this is uh, what theologians refer to as the second use of the law. They said uh, the law has, has three uses. The first use is it, it gives us a picture of, of what a society running right would really look like. What, what, you know, not murdering each other is, is exceptionally helpful and, and helping society run well. The first use of the law. The second use of the law is we read it and we realize that we are, as we are saying, are we are lawbreakers, that we don't live up to it. That we, in fact, can't live up to it. And if you're not convinced of that, stick around for the rest of, this, of the series as we talk about each of these commandments and the fullness of what they really mean for us. But the law has the power to condemn because we, uh, we don't live up to it. But, but that was no surprise to God. Look at what happens right after he gives the Ten Commandments. Okay, if, 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 if you notice when you're reading through, there's this very strange shift. He gives the Ten Commandments, talks about how terrified the people are. Moses says, don't be afraid, do be afraid. And then what happens? God says, now let me tell you about the altars when you build them. Okay, you're not going to make it out of gold and silver like the pagan nations around you. You're going to build it out of dirt. Or if you use stones, uh, don't think you're going to impress me with your great craftsmanship. Just stack them up. Don't use a tool on it. You're only going to profane it. Okay, how did we get to altars? What do you do on an altar? Well, you make sacrifices. What do you make sacrifices for? For your sin. What does God say? In the very midst of giving them the Ten Commandments, he says, and I know you are not going to keep those. And let's talk about my provision for broken and failing people. Here's, what's, here's what it is going to take. A sacrifice that you might be forgiven that you might be accepted back in. But even from the beginning, and simply my point here, is that we knew, God knew the law had the power to condemn. But he also gave them this hint, this sign, this foretaste of there is a payment that can be made to make you right. There's a sacrifice that can be made that can heal you. And, of course, that's what we see. In Jesus, our true sacrifice... Think about the ways the New Testament describes Jesus in very vivid sacrificial language. Romans 3 talks about him being the propitiation and an atoning sacrifice for sin. The Bible uses the image of Jesus as a perfect lamb who is sacrificed. Why? So that those who are marred, and those who are crooked, and those who are broken by sin might find forgiveness and healing through a sacrifice that was made for them. A perfect sacrifice made for them. That even here in the giving of the law and this instruction about altars, it's already looking ahead to that final sacrifice of Jesus coming for lawbreakers like us. Okay, the law has power to condemn us, but the second thing the law has power to do is to form us. This is what theologians call the third use of the law. It doesn't only condemn us. What does it do for those who are in God's grace through the goodness of, in our case, through the goodness of Jesus, through the goodness of God's redemptive work? What does the law do for us? Well, it tells us what God is like, and it teaches us how to live. Not teaches us how to live under the burden of, here is what you must do to own up, to measure up to God's standard, because we've already seen, even in Exodus 20, we see that that's not possible. But the law comes and teaches us what it means for us as God's redeemed and forgiven people to live a life that reflects his goodness and reflects his holiness. And we see that in verse 20 of Exodus 20. He says, um, 
Moses said to the people, do not, again, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. What is God, how does God want us to respond to the Ten Commandments? He wants us, of course, to keep them, that we may not sin. One commentator speaking about this had, just had a great, very vivid image of this. He talked about God's Old Testament people, and it's true of us too. If you read through the book of Exodus, they seem like a, a people who are bent on this suicidal path over the cliff. As God comes to them in his grace a time and again, and they are continually rebelling and running away, this almost suicidal drive to run away from God and his goodness and his law. God knows that sin destroys us. And so what is a good and loving God going to do for his loved people? He's going to tell us not to commit spiritual suicide. He's going to tell us this law is given for us that we may not sin because sin destroys it tears apart the human community. and It tears us apart. He, he tells us, the, us this, that we may not sin. But not only that we may not sin, not only that we may not refrain from something, but that we may do something, that we may, in fact, be a holy people. He comes to teach us what it means, as God's redeemed, forgiven people, to be a holy people. Uh, listen to what one commentator says about this. He says, uh, now the Israelites are to learn what a redeemed life looks like. The law, in other words, is connected to grace. It's based on God's gracious act of saving his people. It's not a condition of becoming God's people, for that has already happened in Exodus. They now receive the rules for holy living so they can become more and more God's holy people. That's what he wants for us. But when you think about being God's holy people... What comes to mind? Well, maybe uh, maybe you're somebody who's very much uh, in the throes of really thinking through this Christian thing to begin with. Maybe when you hear holy, what do you hear? Condemning self-righteous prigs, right? Holier than thou. Okay, the word holiness it doesn't it doesn't doesn't have a real pride of place in our uh, American idioms and language, does it? What do you picture when you when we say that God came to make us holy. Let me just give us a picture of this. Who was the holiest person that ever lived? This is when your growing up Sunday school answer really is right. It's Jesus, right? <laughs> Jesus was the only person who actually kept this law in its most minute details. He is the only person who kept every bit of it. He is the only person who did not turn from it in his attitude, internally, in his actions, externally. He is the only one who's ever lived who did not deviate from this law. Jesus is the holiest person who ever lived. So if we, see, if we want a picture of what holiness might look like embodied in a life, embodied in our own lives, then we have, we have to look to Jesus. And for those of us who have this fear or are, who are giving people this fear of holiness being about self-righteous, condemning people. What, did, what was the effect of Jesus' holiness on the people that he came in contact with? Well, one of the things that stands out to me in the Gospels is that Jesus was a magnet for people who knew that they were sinners. They were drawn to him. He was an incredible offense to those who thought they were doing okay, to those who thought they were more or less living up to the law, but to those who knew they had broken it. They flocked to Jesus. Um, 
quote uh, Tim Keller, a PCA pastor. He says, you know, we tend to think about that when it comes to God's kingdom, the good people are in and the bad people are out. In other words, those who keep the law are in, but those who break the law are out. But Jesus tells us something different. This is not the good who are in and the bad who are out. It's the humble who are in and the proud who are out. It's those who know they aren't good and cling to Jesus for forgiveness who are in. And those who bank on their own moral effort, those who are proud of their own relative success in keeping the law, they're the ones who are out. The humble are in and the proud are out. If you want to see a picture of holiness, look to Jesus. As he comes and embodies this, and it is good news for those who know they are not good. So the law has the power to condemn us. The law also has the power to form us. And let me just give us a couple images of this forming, this freedom, I would say, in keeping with the theme of our whole sermon series here, this freedom that it brings us into, the freedom of, as forgiven people, having the law. The commandments are, here's the first image, the commandments are a guardrail to protect us. Okay, imagine yourself going over, um, a, driving over a bridge. I love going over those incredibly tall bridges where you can just see for miles. I came, I've got a list of, of great bridges. Charleston, Cooper Bridge, Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. When I grew up, I grew up in Tennessee near Nashville. The Natchez Trace, which runs through Tennessee, has this, inc- this one point you just break through the trees and you're, you're suddenly on this bridge looking incredibly high up, looking over miles and miles of farmland. It's, it's breathtaking. And my wife is terrified by big bridges. I love them. But here's the thing about driving over a bridge. If you take the guardrails off the side, then, then what happens? Well, you, you, you suddenly find that you actually, that might on the surface look like greater freedom. It's actually less freedom. Because one of two things is going to happen to you. You're going to come zooming along and, you know, you're going you're gonna to veer off a little bit too far. And in that beautiful valley below, you're going to get a close-up view of that. Uh, or for most of us, what's more likely to happen is, where are you going to drive? Right in the center of the bridge. And you're going to have your eyes riveted on the road in front of you. And you're not going to see anything around you because all you can think is, my incredible freedom is a danger to me. Much like driving across a bridge, the guardrails um, actually bring us freedom. Because suddenly you have a chance to enjoy the bridge. And suddenly you have a chance to look out over the countryside and take it in because there's something protecting you. The guardrails actually bring us freedom. And you can lose your freedom with no guardrails. But here's another way we can go wrong. You can also lose your joy if all you see are the guardrails. You know what it's like as you're zooming by in your car to look out and, and see the little guardrail post go zooming past you. You just, get, you just get sort of dizzy and sick if you try to focus on those. And you can't see what's beyond them then either. What do you have to do? Well, you have to know the guardrails. You have to respect them and live within their confines. But you have to look through them to the freedom that they point us to. Does that make sense? We don't find freedom by taking them away. And we don't find freedom by simply riveting all of our attention on them. them. We live in light of them that we might enjoy the freedom of the view that is a gift to us. Okay, let me give you, if you're not in bridges, let me try something else. Those of you that are carpenters, there are some very skilled ones in our congregation. I'm not among them. Uh, But you know what it's like if if you've seen somebody building something or building a wall. What do you do to make sure 
that the wall is straight. We drop a plumb line. It's the simplest thing in the world. You take a string and you put this little weight on the bottom and, and you hang it there and it, it will hang perfectly straight. Maybe those of you that have built something like this have had the, the dismay of looking at a wall that you were sure was straight <laughs> until you put that plumb line off and you thought, shoot, uh, I got to start over or I got to fix it. Plumb line shows us what a straight line is and that is what the Ten Commandments do for us. They show us what a straight vertical relationship between us and God looks like. It shows what it means for us to walk with our back straight, metaphorically, as we interact with our God. But again, here's the thing. Much like building that wall, we look at that and say, we are not plumb. We are not in line. Where's that going to lead you? Is it going to lead you to despair? Or is it going to lead you to Jesus? Because every time you look and see that plumb line, what you need to do is see a second plumb line right next to it. One that conforms perfectly to a straight line that's been pointed out to us. And that is Jesus. That is his life for us. That is his death for us. A perfectly straight plumb line in plumb with our God, given to us, credited to us, that we might be able to stand straight and live a forgiven life before God. And interestingly... Jesus had a profession before he was a preacher, right? He was a carpenter. Good carpenters know how to take tilted walls and make them straight and make them plumb. And that's, in the hands of Jesus, what the Ten Commandments do for us. They come to us as people who are very much out of kilter, but forgiven by our God that he might come and begin to make us holy people. People who are once again in line, who are straight, who are not only forgiven by God, but who now live lives of holiness that reflect God's character and his goodness to the world around us. In the words of Camper from last week's sermon, God is turning us, his people, and he uses the Ten Commandments, and other, among other things, to do this. He's turning us more and more into love God and love neighbor kinds of people, just as Jesus was the perfect love God and love neighbor kind of person. We'll close the way we opened with our call to worship. The terror of Mount Sinai doesn't have the final word for us. Remember in our call to worship from Hebrews, that we don't stand before a mountain where we are deafened by the trumpet blast, where we are scared out of our minds by the thick cloud and the bright flashes of fire. What do we do in Jesus? We come before God in this festal gathering. We have come to the party. We have come to God's welcome, his open arms, his embrace. As forgiven people, learning more and more to live in line with these Ten Commandments. Let's pray. Father, we pray and first of all say thank you. Because the law has the power to condemn us. But in Christ, the law does not have the last word. That you, Jesus, have perfectly fulfilled the law on our behalf. So that now we might not be terrified the law, by the law. But we might know it as our friend. As it shows us the beauty of a holy God. And it shows us a picture of the holiness that you call us into. That we might be fully human. So Lord, we look to you and ask that you would continue that great work in our lives. Of turning us from sin which is suicide 
and turning us to life. Lord, we thank you that even as you bring us these laws, you bring them to us as your people. You move to us in grace, first to last. So we give you thanks and pray that that grace would loom large in our eyes this week. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.